As we come to the scriptures, uh, Psalm 119, verse 135 says, Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Please pray with me. Father, that is our prayer. Make your face to shine upon us, your people, your servants, your beloved. Give us your grace. Show us your favor as you promised you will. And Father, as we come to your word, teach us. Teach us your statutes, your word. Open our ears that we might hear, our eyes that we might see the goodness uh, of your glory, your love. And Father, uh, renew to us through your word a vision of you and our future with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning is in Psalm 15. Psalm 15. The content of Psalm 15 is delivered in the form of question and answer. It addresses the single most important question for mankind. That is, how can we, as mere creatures, live safely with a holy God. Psalm 15, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. And thus far in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. In the beginning was... Peace. Harmony filled every space of creation and the love that existed from all of eternity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It overflowed and abounded and reigned over all of creation. Man enjoyed the very presence of God. He lived in the safety and security of God's abundant goodness and his pleasure. He never had to look over his shoulder. He never wondered when the other shoe would drop. He never lived in fear of the day that the Lord would show up and take an account of his life. Just true peace. Imagine what that would be like. Imagine the exhilaration, the joy, the energy, the strength that we would know in such a world. Imagine what it would be like to stand and see God face to face. And there know not dread or judgment, but only his goodness and pleasure. Just imagine that. We ask the question, how can we have such a life? How is it that we can live safely before God? 
Now, it, it may not be a question, the most asked question in the history of humanity. In fact, many may never actually ask this question at all, but each of us should. Because this is and has been the single most important question in the history of humanity since the, the day that humanity fell in Adam. When he, as our representative, chose to pursue life apart from God rather than to abide in him. We read of that time at the opening chapters of Genesis and, and the end of Genesis 3 sets us up for this question we're asking. Because after man rebelled against God by defying his good commands and after God comes and his rightful response is to deliver these various curses to mankind and the serpent for their culpability and their sin. The scripture says this, the Lord God sent man out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the the way to the tree of life. He drove man out. And the question ever since that day is, how do we get back? How do we get back there? How do we get back into the blessed presence of God? And if we are able to find a way in, how do we stay there permanently? The rest of history, past, present, and future, is all about the return of God's people into God's immediate Presence, And that is our question of the text today. When, when David says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill? He's asking, who is it that can live safely with you, God, in your immediate presence? And so today, what I want to do is first consider this question of the text. Second, I want to consider the answer to the question, which is going to leave us with uh, a great dilemma. And third, I want to consider the solution to that dilemma. So first, the question. There's a lot wrapped up in the language that David uses when he refers to God's holy hill or this tent. The minds of the community would have, would have been flooded with a, with a rich history of their relationship with Yahweh and various sacred mountains. Their minds would have begin in, begun in creation in Genesis chapter 1. They would have recalled how God had created all things and after he made all that is that the world was covered with these this dark and lifeless waters. We read about this in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. It says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And as we keep reading in the text we see that God out of these waters brought life And order to the world. And at the pinnacle of his creative work, he fashioned man and he planted a garden. He put man in the garden called Eden. And this was the holy place of creation, the place in which man would live with God. And the scriptures tell us in a number of different ways that Eden, it describes Eden as a mountain, a holy hill. There's, there's various uh, ways that the scriptures testify this, but, but most plainly, God himself in Ezekiel chapter 28 calls Eden both the garden of God and also the holy mountain of God. And the significance is that in creation, Yahweh brought mankind through the waters 
to the mountain for worship and communion with him. And then the minds of the community would have moved forward a bit to the days of Noah when the unrighteousness of humanity had just gotten to be too much. And God poured out his judgment upon all of humanity. He literally opened up the windows of heaven and covered all the earth with these deathly, chaotic floodwaters. And there in the midst of these waters was this floating temple ark housing Noah a man who had found favor with God, a righteous and blameless man, his family, and the animals. And after many months following this flood, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And at God's command, Noah came out from the ark. And there he built an altar and he worshiped the Lord. In the flood, Yahweh had brought mankind through the waters to the mountain for worship and communion with him. And then the community would have fast-forwarded a little bit more to the, 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 the nation's time in Egypt. And they would have remembered how they moved there, they packed their bags, and things had gone from good to bad to worse. And, and the nation of Israel cried out to Yahweh that he would deliver them because they were living under this harsh and cruel slavery under Pharaoh. And Yahweh heard their cries and he rescued them with those mighty signs in which Yahweh demonstrated to Pharaoh and all of Egypt that he alone is God. And so Pharaoh, in response, he let Israel go and then later changed his mind. And he sent his army after them and, and there in the wilderness, Israel found themselves pinned in with the raging army behind them and this impassable body of water in front of them, the Red Sea. But God would not fail in his deliverance. Again, he rescues them. He parts the Red Sea. He destroys the Egyptian army. And then he takes them to a mountain, Mount Sinai. In the Exodus, Yahweh had brought his people through the waters to the mountain for worship and communion with him. And then things in their history change a little bit, but they would have understand what's going on. At Sinai, Moses received the covenant, including the proper way in which they were to worship. And there they were to build this tabernacle, later the temple, what David refers to in Psalm 15 as the tent. And this would be the place where the people would now worship and commune with God. But even here, the structure of the tabernacle itself is modeled after the reality of these mountain experiences. Uh, there are many examples, but just to name a few. First, uh, when they came to Mount Sinai, there was really kind of three layers to the mountain. There was, there was the base of the mountain, right, just outside of it. And all the community, that was for them. It was fenced off. They were not allowed to go up because the mountain was holy to the Lord. And, and so it was fenced off, but they had an altar there. Uh, but then only a few, Moses, Aaron, uh, Nadiv, um, Avihu, Aaron's sons, and 70 elders, they enter onto the mountain and they travel halfway up. And, and there, about halfway up, they have a feast before the Lord. But only one is able to ascend to make the summit and there meet with God, Moses. Well, with the tabernacle, this three-part structure is maintained. The, the outer court is for the whole community had an altar burnt offering for them. Uh, the inter, inner court, 
the holy place uh, was only for a select few, the priest of the sanctuary. Uh, but then only one, the high priest, was able to enter the most holy place, the, the holy of holies, into the very presence of Yahweh. Also, the entrance to the tabernacle was always to face east. You might remember we read this when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden away from the presence of God. Uh, they were driven east, meaning movement back toward God was a westward movement at the beginning of Genesis. And so it was with the tabernacle. The door to Eden was guarded when they were banished from the garden by these cherubim, these holy angels and the curtains of the tabernacle guarding the outer entrance and also the veil um, guarding the, the holy of holies was to have these cherubim embroidered or, or pictured upon it. And then as we close the book of Exodus, this is, which is we're reading all about what God has given to Israel at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And, 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 and we close the book and it tells us that this great glory cloud that, that filled, that, that covered the, the summit of Mount Sinai now comes and fills the tabernacle, signifying that God, where he's going to meet with, with his people, is moved from this mountaintop to this, this tabernacle. And we flip the page in our Bible, and, and the book of Leviticus opens up, and it says this, that Yahweh called Moses, just like he had called him to Mount Sinai. He called Yoz, Moses and spoke to him from the tent. The point is that now, as the people of Israel traveled in the wilderness, the new sacred mountain, the tabernacle, would go with them. That God would go with them. And so it should come as no surprise, the community was thinking this after David conquers the city of Jerusalem, that when Solomon built the permanent temple, he built it on the highest hill in Jerusalem. And in the scriptures, when we read about Zion or Mount Zion, it refers to both the city of David and also the temple mount in Jerusalem. And all along the way, as we, we think about these sort of sacred moments and these meeting places with God in this mountain context, there is this kind of gate liturgy. Always this question. Who can enter? And on what grounds might they enter? And as an answer, we see the same pattern that we read of here in Psalm 15. Only the righteous may enter in. This is the answer that David gives to us in verse 2. He says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right speaks truth in his heart. This is the answer. The common, the unclean, the sinner, he does not enter in. Only the one who is blameless, whose heart is sincere and undivided. Only the one who acts justly and does what is right. Only the one who is faithful and true. Only this one is able to enter in and to live safely with God. And think about this. Who can live and remain in Eden? And that history. 
Well, it was righteous Adam who lived in Edom, but when he sinned, he was banished from the garden. Who is chosen as the one to preserve God's people in the days of the flood? It was Noah, a man who had found favor with God, a righteous and blameless man, as the scriptures say. Who alone is called by God to summit and to meet God at Sinai and later is called to speak with God from the temple or from the tabernacle? It was Moses, God's chosen prophet, God's chosen mediator, God's chosen shepherd of his people. And who is it that was able to enter the the Holy of Holies later in the history of Israel? Well, it was the, the, the high priest, the one who inherited the role originally given to Moses. And so this question, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill is rehearsing this gate liturgy. Only the righteous may enter in. Only the righteous may live there permanently, which is what, where David ends at the end of his Psalm. He who does these things shall never be moved. Now, the answer that only the righteous may enter is both good news and it is bad news for us. It's good news that only the righteous can enter and to live safely with God because it means that God is not fickle. He he does not change. He is not inconsistent with himself. He is always true, always just, always good, always holy always righteous. God is righteous and thus he always acts according to his righteous character. And this is good because we need something ultimate, something that doesn't change an anchor, an ultimate truth, an ultimate reality upon that, which all other depends, something that is steady and immovable. Because it is only something steady and immovable, something that we can really depend upon that is able to define and give reason and purpose for the world and our lives. Only this God makes sense of the world. And to live with this God is true life, true blessedness, true peace that will never fade. Now, the problem is that to live with this God means we must conform to his character. And that's the bad news. We simply do not measure up. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And of course, we read earlier when Paul used those words in his letter to the church uh, to Rome in Rome. And he used it so that every mouth might be silenced and held accountable. That no man has lived a justifiable life before God. And this shouldn't be news to any of us, even if it's the first time we've heard it. I mean, we get it. We, we look at ourselves, we look at our lives and we go, yeah, I've, I am. If the standard is perfect righteousness, 
I have fallen way short. We do not conform to his character. And the question then, how is it that we can possibly live safely with God? Now the question becomes a terrible one. It has gone from bad to worse than we can imagine. It really is, if you think about it, a a dreadful question. It's a terrible one, one that leaves us with nothing but despair. I think Adam and Eve felt this. Remember, after they defied God's good command, they heard God approaching. and, And what did they do? They hid themselves. They were exposed, ashamed, guilty. And so are we. We are not the righteous and blameless ones. We have not merited an entrance into the presence of God. We cannot live in Yahweh's tent or dwell on his holy hill. So the question then is, is there a solution? Well, there's certainly more to the story. There is some tension between what we would expect to happen in the history of mankind and what actually does happen throughout history. You see, the story of mankind very well could have ended quite quickly. It would have been fair for the whole thing, for God to just bring the whole thing to an end the moment that Adam sinned, but, but he didn't. Instead, God covered their shame with the skin of an animal. I mean, yes, they were banished from the garden, but they were banished for their own good so that they would not eat from the tree of life and thus live in their sin and misery forever. Even their banishment was gracious to them. And and then later, God had a chance to wipe out all of humanity once and for all with the flood. But instead, he preserved mankind through Noah. He he called a nation to himself with Abraham. He blessed them. He loved them. Not for any deserving reason, simply because. And he rescued Israel from their slavery. He gave to them his presence with them in their midst. and, And he forgave over and over and over again their many rebellions. And so while the answer to the question is, who is it can live safely with God is not me, the history urges us to continue to look to God for the way in which he will draw us up to him. Because if God has so provided and preserved his people from the very beginning, will he not also provide for us? And this he has done in Jesus. Jesus. God in the flesh. He came down to us. He descended. Now think again of this mountain imagery. God descended down from the sacred mountain, heavenly Mount Zion. He has come down to dwell with us. But that is not all. More importantly, Jesus came so that through him we might ascend 
to make the heavenly summit and live safely with God and there live with him forever. We have to ask the question, well, how so? How has he done this? Well, Jesus lived the righteous life that is required by God that we read about in Psalm 15. And this is the part of the significance of the virgin birth. It's that, that Jesus became one of us to represent us, but without the guilt of original sin. And as he lived his life, he was tempted just as we are and yet was without sin. He continued to live in the obedience that Adam, you and I, failed to live out. At every point where man failed, Jesus obeyed. He lived the justifiable life and is thus the blameless one before God. He is the only one who has merited for himself the right to live safely with his father. And what he has merited, what he has earned, he gives to us, his people. And not only did Jesus live the righteous life that must be ours, But he also died that our sin might be atoned for, that we might be purified and cleansed from the filth and guilt of our sin. The wrath of God that is awaiting God's unrighteous people has been extinguished by his sacrifice upon the cross. And so now because sin is removed, because the guilt has been paid for, and because his perfect righteousness has been made ours, when we stand before God, we don't stand in his wrath or his judgment, but we stand in his pleasure. And of course, if Jesus dead in a grave were the end of the story, then there would st- we would still be without hope. For, for if Christ is not risen from the dead, then we would have no reason at all to think that we would have life. If God is dead, there is no life at all. Uh, but, but death could not hold Christ because he is the living one, the righteous one. And so on the third day from his crucifixion, Christ rose. He, and he appeared to his people, and he proclaimed the victory that he had won for them and the future that he has secured for us, for sinners like you and me. And he wasn't done. After that, he, he, after he rose, he ascended back um, into the presence of his father, and he sat down at his father's side. And, and, and the glory cloud that covered Sinai and filled the tabernacle, just like that. Now the Spirit of God proceeds from the Father to fill the new temple, the church, the believer in Jesus. And now think about David's question that he asked, who shall dwell on your holy hill? And here's the kicker. The believer in Jesus, you and I, the redeemed, the church, those united to Jesus by the Spirit, we already dwell there. We, the redeemed, have already ascended and have already sat down at the Father's side in Jesus. 
And right now, a few of you are looking at me like, what? I'm right here. That doesn't make any sense at all. And I know, but get this. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter. This is worth the price of admission, so uh, open your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now watch this. And he's raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see that? He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That is an accomplished reality. And it's accomplished because we have been united to Christ. You see, the Spirit of God is the one. He comes and he unites us to Jesus. And when we are united to Jesus... All that Christ accomplished, we accomplished. Not we ourselves, but we have done it in Christ. What I mean is this. When Christ obeyed, we obeyed. When Christ died, we died. When Christ was risen, we were raised with him. And when Christ ascended to the heavenly places, we ascended with him. And you might be wondering, well, how does this work metaphysically? Like, I really don't understand. And the the answer is, I have no idea. (laughs) But I don't have to understand the metaphysics of the deal to be enthralled with the reality of it. And we do this all the time. How is it that we can know and enjoy and be amazed by non-physical things like love or beauty? And we can't measure love under a microscope. And yet we know that they are real and we often have this deep, uh, rich experience that captivates our hearts and our minds. And so it is with this reality we learn We learn to be captivated by this truth. And we have to take it by faith. I can't measure my ascension under a microscope. But by faith, I know it's true. And if I can be so captivated by faith in the reality of my being ascended with Christ now, how much more am I transfixed upon that future day, the day of the Lord, the day that Christ returns, when what I enjoy now by faith will be fully mine and fully enjoyed by sight? You see, our knowing God now is, is a mediated knowledge, right? But there's, there's coming a day. When our knowledge of God will be immediate. 
we will see him as he is. That's an incredible thought to think about how what was established at the very beginning and what was lost in Edom, how that will be restored. And the dwelling place of God will be with man. Heaven will come down. The heavenly city, heavenly Mount Zion will come and it will be our full and final reality for the rest of history. And all the earth, the fully redeemed, the new heavens and the new earth will be the very place where we will worship and commune with God. And that, my friends, that's everything. Him with us, that is everything. There is nothing greater. That is ultimate. Too often, in sort of modern American evangelicalism, um, our talk about future glory is just too shallow. And I don't mean this as an angry critique. It's just sad because there's so much more. Our vision of the future, our vision of glory is It's just too small. There's more than what we often talk about. At funerals, we are comforted. We're told to be comforted knowing that we will see our loved ones again. Um, That we can um, find some solace knowing that they are in a better place, enjoying a reunion with a particular relative, um, maybe a particular place with their favorite drink or their favorite hobby, whatever it might be. And, and I get why we do that. And, and because it's something tangible, something that we can understand, something that we can measure under a microscope that, that, that can help us understand and, and, and find some help in those moments. But it's just too small. Or in sermons across America, we are being told to anticipate glory as a place where we can't sin as a place where our toils and struggles will cease, where our troubled minds will be made clear, where our tears will be turned to laughter and, and so on. And, 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 and all of this is good. We can and should find comfort here. In fact, the scriptures tell us these things that we might find some help today and anticipate that future. So don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that these things are not true. What I am saying is that when we settle for these, we are being, in the words of C.S. Lewis, far too easily pleased. Because there is something better, something more, something ultimate, something that is the best. These other things are not the thing. God himself is the thing. God, him, his presence and all of these smaller gifts that we, 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 we land upon, the elimination of tears or sorrow of pain, are simply byproducts of living in the presence of the living God. And sure, we can hold on to these other realities as, as, as things that will help us, that, that we long for, that we anticipate. And the scriptures urge us to do so, but the scriptures do not make these things 
ultimate. The scriptures tell us these things to move us beyond them by faith that we might hold on to God himself as that which is ultimate, the best, far beyond our imaginations and comprehensions. He is our hope, him. And we're always asking the question, yeah, but good, Ryan, but but what are we going to do there in glory? You're going to behold God. That's what you will do. And if that's not enough, your vision for the future is just far too small. You will behold God. I mean, I get the question of what we're going to do. I think it's a good one. I think it's one we should ask, one we should explore in the scriptures. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm just not ultimately all that concerned about what we'll do. I'm just concerned that we'll see God and that we will live with him forever. Because everything else will fall into place. All that we need, all that we want is found in his presence. And I look forward to spending forever amazed by him and whatever else I might be doing. You might ask, well, Ryan, are you... Do you, are, do you look forward to, do you anticipate, do you... Is it helpful to you knowing that you will see your loved ones in glory? Yes, but not exactly. I want to see my loved ones see God face to face in glory. There, I don't know how helpful I would be. Because they would have everything with God. That is our comfort. That is our vision of the future. Him with us. And so, uh, a few responses from us. There was a point in my life where I knew that I wanted more. And maybe you're here today thinking the same thing. You look at your life and you think, well, there has to be more. Well, the more is God himself. What you need is peace with God. What you want, even if you don't fully understand it now, is life with God. He made you. He made you for himself and he sent Jesus to redeem you. And his invitation is simple. Come. You don't have to try to fix up your life and make it look all righteous and blameless in order to make the journey up to the mountain to see God. No, his invitation is far more simple. Believe, trust in Jesus. Depend upon him as the righteous one who is able to bring you into the presence of God. Climb upon his shoulders and let his life, his death, and his resurrection be be what carries you up that you might see God and no real life because that is where you will discover that you don't need anything more. 
And you might be hearing this and thinking to yourself, but, but what do I do? I don't really know what to do with that. I'm, am I supposed to, you know, wave my hands? What, what do I say? And, and, and it's really simple. You're going to just talk to God. He doesn't really care if your head is raised or your head is bowed, if your eyes are open, if your eye is shut. He doesn't care if you're using a pen or the silent thoughts in your mind. What he cares about is the honesty of your heart. And when you talk to him, you're going to tell him that you know that you need Jesus, that you're a sinner in need of his kindness, that you know and trust that Jesus has lived the perfect life that you don't live but need to, that he's died the life that you deserve to die but don't have to, and that he rose from the dead so that you can live forever with him. And don't worry, I said that really fast. If it doesn't come out the way that I said it, it doesn't matter. If, it, if you forgot part of it, it doesn't matter. Because all that matters is that you're coming before the Lord. Saying, yeah, I believe this. It's not a program. And then at the end of our service, you're going to stand up out of your seat and you're going to walk down here to your right, to my left. And there's going to be a couple of elders there. And you're going to walk up to them and you're going to look at them and you're going to say, I belong to God. Now what? Because the truth is that God has more for you even now. And he has called us, the church, to help you along the way. If that's true of you, I urge you. Come. The invitation is simple. Come. As long as it is called today. Come. And for those of you who know Jesus, by, by faith, believe that God is the more of your life. As you hope for the future, don't settle for anything less than him. Than the blessed vision of God himself. And as you anticipate that future day, take great comfort even today, knowing that you already have God now. He has taken up his dwelling in you by the Spirit. He has, he has raised you up with Jesus and he has seated you in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And you don't have to understand that thing to enjoy it by faith. So just enjoy it. Tell your children about it. Remind your friends of it. Because it is everything. He is everything. For the grieving here today, you will behold you will behold God, and your tears will be wiped away. For the lonely here today, you will behold God, and you will forever. Be known, loved, enjoyed by him. For the fearful here today, you will behold God. You will not be afraid. For the sad, you will behold God. Forever enjoy his great pleasure. For the angry here today, you will behold God and all your bitterness and hostility will melt away with his peace.
for the struggling sinner, you will behold God and you will be conformed to his character. For the deeply ashamed, you will behold God and you will stand with him in complete freedom. For the weak, you will behold God. He is your strength. For all of us, believer in Jesus, you will behold God. He is everything. All of this because Jesus is the righteous one who carries us up that we might behold God. As I planned the liturgy this week, I struggled as a profession of faith whether we should read together from Hebrews or another passage from 1 John. I chose the passage from Hebrews. Um, I set you up to look at it. I don't want you to look at it yet. Because I want you to listen. Because I'm going to read the passage from 1 John because I just couldn't let it go. It's just too, too good. And it comes from 1 John chapter 3. What I want you to do is just to listen to these words and be comforted to let your imaginations race a little bit. Let your vision for the future expand as you hear these words from God. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Please pray with me. Father, there are times when we really just don't have the words. You are teaching us what it means to be your children. And we're amazed by it. And Father, too often in our lives, we look around us and we focus upon that which does not last, that which is is not ultimate, and we uh, neglect looking to you. And so, Father, I pray that you would be with us and help us as we go from here, that you would expand the, the vision that we have for our future, that we will one day see you face to face. What we now see dimly, we will see perfectly, that we will see you, that we will live with you, that we will know you immediately 
and there forever be amazed by you. God, I pray for us as a church that this vision for the future would inspire, transform, drive us to be a people who love and honor you, worship you in spirit and in truth, who love our neighbors with a passion that can only come from you. Father, above all, continue to be with us. Go with us as we go from here, because if you will not, we don't want to go anywhere. But you've promised you would go. So we anticipate the ways that you will be at work in our lives. Father, we love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.